Gracious God, it's extraordinary to us to think of what people can do to people and how otherwise seemingly sane people can do something so horrific as to massacre a whole group of men and boys seeking victory in a war that even now as we look back on it can say it didn't really accomplish anything. We think, Lord, about the Bosnian conflict. We think about the senseless loss of life. We think about how whole communities of people throughout the Balkans were cleared. They were forced to go to, uh, uh, back to their ethnic countries, even though they might have been raised in a, a, a completely different nation. Uh, they were cast out of those nations. And so, Lord, that, that kind of division, that disunity, that strife, that turmoil, it still exists today in the Balkans. And so, Father, we cry out to you. We pray for those that have lost loved ones in the massacre at Srebrenica. We pray, Father, that you would comfort them and encourage them on this day. And we pray, Father, that people of the world would remember. They would remember this massacre just as they remember what happened in Rwanda, just as they remember what happened with the Holocaust, that they would remember <clears throat> and vow for this never to happen again. And we cry out to you, Lord, for all the Balkans, all the nations of the Balkans, especially Bosnia-Herzegovina, and we pray that your gospel would go forth, that there would be peace and reconciliation, not only in that nation, but all across the Balkans. And we pray that this would happen through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we go to your word, I pray that you'd open it up to us so that not only would we read it, but also we would live it. And we thank you and praise you for your love for us and for your word. Let your spirit rest upon me that I can bring your word to your people this day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we go to the word, let's look first of all into Proverbs. I've got a couple of verses I want to read for you there. First from Proverbs chapter 3. And then to Proverbs chapter 18. In Proverbs 3, we just read verse 34. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. This in the New Testament uh, and in the Septuagint is translated, um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then chapter 18, verse 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And then to Luke, chapter 18. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast, saying to God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And finally there in Philippians, it's one of my favorite passages, but we're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to read two verses, starting with verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. You know, thinking about the Bosnian War, thinking about many of the wars, in fact, probably most all of the wars of history, one can ask, why do we fight battles? Why do we get caught up into wars? Why do people go to war? And perhaps in almost all situations, we could reduce it probably to one sin, the sin of pride. The sin of pride. You think about uh, the great war in Bosnia, and that happened in large part because certain groups thought, had the, the pride to think that, hey, I should be in leadership, I should rule, I, I should be the one uh, to lead and to guide. We think about uh, Hitler and Hitler's pride and, and trying to ex expand the, the Third Reich. Uh, we think of pride in, in our leaders today. You know, we're, we're talking here about what qualities to look for in leaders, and it's this assumption that many people have that we need to look for leaders who are very proud, that we need to have leaders who are proud and confident and really project themselves and really speak confidently and speak proudly, and, and in fact, if you look around the world today, those are the kinds of leaders that tend to get in power. But if you think, why are we in the Brexit mess that we're in, whether or not you're for leave or for remain, was it not the pride of a prime minister who thought he could cavalierly take a nation into a, uh, a vote that he would probably win? Many of the problems, many of the issues that we look at today in our society, whether they be in business, you know, whether it's somebody like a fund manager who will, I will not name here, uh, who has kind of closed off his fund uh, because he proudly thought that he could produce a lot of growth, a lot of, uh, a lot of advancement, and, and he declared his pride. People bought into his pride, and now they can't get out of his pride. And we see this all around us. And we expect that somehow pride in our leaders is an, uh, an admirable quality but actually the Bible flips that over and says, not at all, pride in our leaders is a dangerous quality. It is a quality that can have disastrous consequences. You know, of all the sins in the Bible, I fear pride the most. And I know pride has been in my past, and I don't want it to be in my present, and I certainly don't want it to be in my future. Because if you are proud, what does the Bible say? God opposes the proud. So if you are proud, by definition, God is in opposition against you. He is not for you. But if you're humble, what happens? He gives grace, he gives favor to the humble. Notice what 
uh, Solomon said there in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 18, when we look at verse 12, and this is something we see played out, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Pride goes before destruction. And if you have a leader who is walking in their pride, then you need to beware because they are likely marching you into destruction. Pride is not a desirable quality in a leader. It is a devastating quality in a leader. And as we look to leaders, we must beware. Now you might say, okay, Rod, this might work in the church, but, but what about business? Well, many years ago, now, one of the classic business books was called Good to Great. And the author found in Good to Great, as he surveyed a number of companies in that time that were successful, some of those are, still, are not still in existence, but as he surveyed a number of quality, uh, companies that were successful, and he looked at the leaders of those companies, one of the qualities that he found in every leader of every long-term successful company was humility. Humility works in the marketplace. In fact, we often think of humility as something that is weak, that is powerless. It means making everybody your doormat. It means acquiescing in the face of evil, acquiescing in the face of a proud, a strong-willed people. But it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, rightly understood, humility is incredibly powerful. It is incredibly powerful. And humble people are some of the most powerful people in the world. And humble leaders are some of the best leaders that we can follow. And how do we understand humility? If it's not about being a doormat, if it's not about being a milk toast, if it's not about letting everybody run over you, if it's not about you know, keeping your head down while you know, the high flyers go over you, uh, if it's not about weakness, but it's about toughness, what is it? You know, what is it about? Well, one way to look at humility is the way that Neil Anderson defines it as confidence properly placed. A humble person understands that their confidence cannot be in their own strengths and skills, in their own gifts and abilities. I've been a leader long enough to know that I cannot succeed without quality people around me. I need the contribution of others to overcome my weaknesses. That's part of what humility is about. It means you place your confidence in your team. It means that when you do have a strength, that you understand that strength and you use it, you maximize it to the best of your ability, always recognizing that you are not complete even with your strongest strengths all brought together, there is no human being who is complete in and of himself. Having confidence properly placed means that we properly place our confidence in God, that we understand humility of any kind understands that there are forces greater than we are, and these forces will determine the outcomes of our leadership and the outcomes of our lives more than we can ever think or imagine. The forces of time, the forces of location. Why does one business 
grow big and powerful and wealthy and another fail. Oftentimes it has more to do with the context of that business and the timing of that business than it does with the quality of the business, the quality of the ideas, the quality of the management structure. In other words, there are very, very many factors that are involved there. And leaders who are in proper relationship with God will always remember and recognize that ultimately our effectiveness as leaders depends on God. That is the first order of humility. You see that in Jesus' story. In the parable here, the famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, what was the Pharisee doing? He's standing before God and he's saying, hey God, I've got it all together. You need me because I'm doing all this great stuff. I'm giving you a tithe. I'm a righteous person. I'm not a woman. I'm not a Gentile. Uh, I'm not a dog. You know, I'm a good guy. I'm a righteous person. I'm on your team. And boy, aren't you glad that I'm on your team? He doesn't recognize who he is in relationship with God. He doesn't recognize that he can't even begin to compare with God. And, but the tax collector, on the other hand, he knows his weakness. He knows his failings. He knows all the wrong that he's done. And that's why he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the guy goes home declared righteous because he's in a right relationship with God. And that is humility. Humble people will have their confidence properly placed in their team, in their strength, but most importantly, in God, because God is the one who ordains the outcomes of our lives. God is the one who is in control. But leaders not only, uh, you know, humble people not only have their confidence properly placed in God, but humble people also have a right relationship with other people, with other human beings. And that's where we get to what Paul says there in Philippians chapter 2. He says here, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, there's nothing wrong with ambition. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Uh, the desire to do well, the desire to achieve, that is not the antithesis of humility. Humble people will want to achieve great things. And humble people will want to achieve great things for God. They will. There's a drive, there's a determination, there's a passion that comes for a humble person as well as a proud person. But that drive, that determination, that passion does not define you as proud or humble. It's a different issue. When Paul here is talking about selfish ambition, what he is talking about is the spirit of competition. So he says, don't do anything just competing with other people. I've been around guys, uh, you know, I, being a guy, I guess I've been around guys my whole life. Well, it's <laughs> like a dust statement, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but so often I'm with a group of men, and it's like, yeah, you know, I, I got a new car. Yeah, I, I spent uh, 50,000 pounds on my car. <laughs> Oh, yeah? Well, you know, I got a new car. It cost me 60 grand. 
well, you know, my Lamborghini cost me 250000 You know, we're always doing this kind of thing. Uh, and you think that, okay, that's guys in the world, but you know, pastors do that all the time too. You get a group of pastors and they're like, well, how big is your church? You know, and they're, they're going back and forth with that all the time. It's almost rude the way they do it. That's selfish ambition. That comes from selfish ambition. It's not a godly thing. And Paul says, don't do anything out of competition with others or thinking that you're better than other people. That's not humility, that's pride, and that's sinful. So don't do any, anything like that, but in humility, count others, consider others as more significant than yourself. In other words, it's look out for the needs, for the best, for other people first. And that's what, uh, by the way, Good to Great found as well about these company leaders that led their companies from being good companies to great companies. They always were looking out for the benefit of the company and the workers more than they were looking out for their own benefit. In a world where people are competing to have the biggest pay packages, uh, we want a golden handshake as well as a golden goodbye. Uh, this is a completely different attitude. It means that I'm in this for the benefit of other people. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't take care of yourself. Because notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We can look out for our own interests. There's nothing wrong with being a good boss. There's nothing wrong with building a great business. There's nothing wrong with taking home a big paycheck. There's nothing wrong with these things inherently the issue is, are we looking out for the interests of other people? Are we looking out for what is good, what benefits other people? Are we in competition and can thinking ourselves better, or do we want to serve others to see God's best happen in their lives? That attitude of seeking the best for others, looking out for the interests of others, not being in comp competition, and not thinking very highly of yourself, that is what humility is all about in terms of our relationships. So when we have our confidence properly placed in God, and we have a right orientation in our relationships with others, we can see what humility really is. Of course, Jesus was the example of that, as he is with all of our leadership examples. But maybe in closing, I'd like to suggest one other person that I look to, and I wish I knew her personally, and that's the queen. Why has God given her such a long reign? And it's certainly the Lord who has done it, because she's an example of humility. She's an example of putting others first. She's an example of looking out for the interests of our nation. And I think that's why people in our nation really honor the queen. That's why I honor the queen. Because I see in her life a dependency on God and an orientation to others that to me, looking from afar, seems like an example of humility. It's that example that we look for in our leaders because it's that example that brings the favor of God. Thank you, Father. Thank you for leadership. Thank you for showing us the qualities of a good leader. 
We pray for our nation, Lord. We pray that our nation would have a godly, humble leader. A godly, humble prime minister. Godly, humble members of parliament. Godly, humble people in business. We ask for you this, Lord. We cry out for our nation and also for all of Europe. Thank you.